and lastly, I would ask you to turn your attention to the video screens as we have an update on the 2020 vision. Thank you. This past month, we came together to celebrate 25 years of Grace Fellowship. We took a look in the rearview mirror. We got to hear words of blessing and encouragement from some local pastors. And before the night was over, we got to hear Pastor Rex's vision for our church for the next five years. If you were there, you know it was a powerful night of prayer, worship, thanksgiving, and inspiration. If you weren't there, I've got great news. You can watch the recording of the G25 service on our website. Just click the link on the homepage or go to gracefellowship.com 25. Spring is definitely the season for global mission trips at Grace Fellowship. Just this week, we've had a Half Moon Student Ministries team return from Haiti, and our Peru team left for Lima. They're coming back next Saturday, the 14th. The stories these team members are coming back with are pretty cool. The Lord has definitely been answering our prayers for God moments on these trips. And I can tell you from experience, global missions trips are one of the most catalytic discipleship experiences you can sign up for. Let's continue to pray for our Peru team this week and for our Uganda team that's preparing to leave in May. And these are just a few of the trips we've got planned. To find out more about global missions trips and how you can be a part of one, visit the missions page on our website. Work on the Half Moon expansion is progressing and our Half Moon campus is preparing for a very special event next weekend. They're gonna spend some time as a congregation walking through the new addition and consecrating the building in prayer. Which is a good reminder to all of us, let's continue to keep this entire 2020 vision campaign in prayer as we move closer to completing these campaign goals. Keep praying for safety for the workers, for a timely completion of the addition, and for wisdom for our leaders as we prepare to start the next project. Once again, big shout out to everyone who's been giving to this project over the past 12 or 13 months. We're looking at a current giving total of just over $2.1 million right now. Praise God. If you wanna learn more about the 2020 Vision Campaign, that's easy to do. You can visit the display in the lobby or better yet, check out our campaign landing page on gracefellowship.com. And now Pastor Rex is gonna come and preach part seven of this series, Jesus the Caring Friend. Thank you, Jeff, for that great 2020 update. And uh, a thank you to all of you who are engaged in this great adventure of this 2020 vision. I'm getting actually more excited as the months go on as we see the visible fruit of your sacrifice and your commitment and your financial involvement. Thank you for that, all of you who are involved. We really appreciate your partnership in this great adventure. Well, the disciples, it seems, had gone from fear to fear to fear in a matter of hours. When a ferocious storm arose on the Sea of Galilee, they feared for their lives. They said, Master, we're going to drown. And Jesus stilled that raging storm. But then they were afraid of Jesus with fear and amazement. The Bible says they ask, who is this? Who has such incredible power? And then some minutes later, their fears were actually exacerbated when they landed on this coast, this coast with rocky 
cliffs and caves where a legendary man lived, a man who was already a legend in his own time. You see, he was like a night stalker. He inhabited the tombs in this cliff area, and once a local posse had actually caught him and bound him with chains, but he was so supernaturally powerful, he actually broke the chains. And like a night stalker, he continued to terrorize the local people. The word on the street was, if you're smart, you just stay away from that area, especially after dark. But for some reason, Jesus directed their journey to that very spot where he knew this man lived. And they got out, and it was dark, and I could imagine the disciples tiptoeing behind Jesus, their eyes glancing left and right, listening for any unusual sound, and suddenly it happened. This wild character, frothing like a rabid animal, comes running at them, screaming at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, you son of the Most High? I think that'd get my attention. How about you, huh? Yeah, kind of a scary moment. And I just love Jesus' response in Luke chapter 8, verse 30. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And taken aback by Jesus' lack of intimidation, he says, legion. Now, legion was six Thousand, a legion was 6,000 Roman soldiers, usually a few more than that when you add some of the leaders and people who were sort of cavalry and so on that went with them. But he said this because many demons had gone into him. And this pitiful man who's overwhelmed with evil and he's a slave to forces beyond his control, here he is face-to-face with Jesus. But he discovered that Jesus is a friend of the oppressed. And we need to understand that today. Because I believe I'm speaking to people today, young and old, everywhere in between, men and women and young people who have hurts, habits, hang-ups, all kinds of forces that are holding us back and oppressing us literally keeping us from being all God wants us to be, keeping us from flourishing. It is not God's will that we be oppressed by forces like that. It is God's will for all of us that we flourish, discover all that he is, who he is, and what he wants for our lives. That's his will. And so Jesus commanded these demons to come out of him. But listen to this strange paragraph here, starting in verse 32. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. You see, Jesus gave permission. He had authority over these demonic forces, and he still does today. When the demons came out of the man... They went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. 
Now, chances are, you and I will never be literally possessed, as this man was, by demonic forces. But the truth is, sin has the potential to enslave. And there are all kinds of evil forces and sin at work in our lives today. Many people, many people I know, are driven by addictions and destructive behavior. Gary Collins is an eminently respected Christian counselor. He's written a massive tome on Christian counseling. And in that book, he describes an addiction as any thinking or behavior that is habitual, repetitious, and difficult or impossible to control. It usually begins with a short-term pleasure, but soon the person finds there's an increasing bondage to it. It's short-term term pleasure with long-term pain. And one thing all addictions have in common is they take priority over every other issue in life. They begin to dominate the thought life. Sometimes they're called sicknesses. And in a sense, that's true. And yet, we need to understand that on some level, All addictions at some point in the process begin with a choice. And soon, it's out of control. St. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. And I think this story today, bizarre as it may seem to you, if you're maybe new to Scripture and you're kind of checking all this out, I think it's a graphic warning to all of us about the potential of sin to enslave us, whether we're talking about demons or evil in general. Think about it. At one point in this guy's life, he was a young child with enormous potential, innocent, hope in his eyes, a bright future. But somewhere along the way, there was an opening to Satan and he became a prisoner to evil. Now, what are some of the common things that enslave us today and to which we become addicted? We could name dozens of things, literally dozens, but I just wanna quickly highlight some of the obvious ones and say a word about each. Alcohol certainly has that ability to addict and to take control. During my college years, a group of friends and I drove from college in East Tennessee, and we made a trip to Chicago, where we visited a community called Jesus People USA. It's sort of a cross between a a church and a rescue mission and sort of a soup kitchen all rolled into one. It was a great experience, but two times that weekend, we went out with some of the leaders of Jesus People USA, uh, this commune that we'd heard so much about where people were living together in community and trying to radically follow Christ. We went out in the streets of Chicago and did ministry. I'll never forget it. And on the first evening we went out, I met a man whose life was out of control. He pretty much lived in the alleyways, in the streets, in the parks of Chicago. And and talking to him, he was rather bruised and kind of cut up. 
He, he looked desperate, and he pointed to a high-rise building across the street. He said, I used to have an office in the top of that. I was an important man. But he shared this story about how his life spiraled out of control as he became addicted to alcohol. I later asked the staff who had met him before, was that true? Or was he just spinning a story? I said, no, it's absolutely true. He was a top CEO, but alcohol had such a grip in his life that he left his job, his family, and his comfort, and now he lived almost like a desperate animal out in the parks and the alleyways, addiction that some used to call demon rum had enslaved him. Proverbs 20 says, wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Now listen carefully. The Bible clearly and consistently forbids drunkenness. The Bible does not forbid drinking per se. But the warnings for addiction in Scripture are abundant. Proverbs 23 reads, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaints, who has needless bruises, who has bloodshot eyes, those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine, do not gaze at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights. Your mind imagine confusing things. You'd be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you'll say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? That's describing a person who is addicted. So if you wonder if alcohol may be getting its addictive claws in you, I would just ask you a few questions. Please don't blurt your answers out, all right? <clears throat> but just think about this and ponder it. First of all, are you drinking more than you did a year ago? Do you hide your drinking from the people close to you? You see, denial and secrecy are uh, essential in keeping any addiction going. Do you get irritated with those who ask you how much you've had to drink or may suggest you're drinking a bit too much? Can you quit totally for just one week and not be depressed or crotchety about it? Are you willing to prove it? And finally, are you irritated with me right now for just bringing this up? <laughs> if you are, chances are you may have a growing problem. Another common addiction is food. Now trust me, this is one that Christians don't want to talk about. But Proverbs 23 also reads, do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Isn't it interesting? The exact same caution is given to the glutton as to the drunkard. Now, gluttony is a more respected addiction in Christian circles, but it has an enormous power to enslave. And some people don't eat to live, they live to eat. Food 
consumes them. It's pretty much all they think about. Their whole day is wrapped around, what am I going to eat today? Somebody described a glutton as someone who believes a balanced diet is a Big Mac in each hand. But you know, you can be a glutton without being obviously overweight. You can still be consumed with this desire for food. I knew a man who was an alcoholic, and he was also about 150 pounds overweight. And he wanted to get both of these addictions in his life under control. But he said, you know what? Quitting drinking was actually a lot easier than gaining control over food. With the alcohol, for him, and it's not true for everyone this way, but he said, for me, it was just a matter of just putting the plug in the jug and just stopping and not having it so easily accessible. He said, for food, it was much harder. He said, you've got to learn to eat moderately every day, and you've got to walk that dog three times a day, he said. Proverbs 23 again says, put a knife to your throat if you're given to gluttony. Do not crave his delicacies, for that food is deceptive. So whether you're talking about gluttony, anorexia, bulimia, compulsive behavior toward food is addictive and destructive. And again, as Christians, we don't want any force in our life that's keeping us from flourishing, truly being the best in all God designed us to be, and gluttony is a spiritual problem. It shows, at the very minimum, a lack of self-control, and self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. Third, some are addicted to drugs. We're hearing so much these days about the opioid addictions in our nation, and they've been well-documented. They have the power to enslave. But many Christians have become addicted and dependent on other drugs to get us through the day. I had an operation about three years ago on my knee. Just a minor little thing. Many of you have had the same operation. I had a medial meniscus tear on my left knee, and it was bothering me as I ran and as I did other sports and things. So I wanted to get it kind of, kind of uh, operated on and get some of the scar tissue taken away. Well, as I went in for this mild operation... Before the anesthesiologist put the epidural in my back to block the pain, they gave me a common drug that's given before minor surgeries called Versid. Some of you have had it. I want to be a representative for Versid. I want to spend my life going and talking about the virtues of that little drug. I want to tell you folks, I didn't have a care in the world. I liked everybody. I just wanted to go up and hug people. I was euphoric. I felt no pain whatsoever. That's the power of drugs. Now, many of you are on prescription drugs that assist your health, and they're essential to your well-being. I would urge you to reasonably follow your doctor's instructions. But if you're sneaking diet pills and pain pills and antidepressants and sleeping pills every day for months at a time, be alert to the danger. 
it seems to me that there's an addiction growing in your life. Former Green Bay Packers quarterback Brett Favre admitted years ago that he almost wrecked his Hall of Fame football career by becoming addicted to painkillers. You can be a slave to pills so much that you feel you can't cope without them. And yet scripture says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We need to take care of this temple. Fourth, we're also hearing a lot today about the dangers of sexual addictions. Certainly lust and pornography has enormous power to enslave. You may begin with still pictures, then move to movies, then to live entertainment, to actually acting out on those desires. You hunger and feast and then hide and feel guilty. And then you hunger and feast and hide and feel guilty. And it's this vicious cycle. And especially for a believer, you are just overcome with guilt when you're caught in that. I've listened to so many testimonies, mostly from men, but women as well, who are caught in that addiction of pornography and sexual addiction that's out of control. The numbers are staggering. Over 68% of young men, 18% of young women view sexually explicit websites at least once per week. And much of this happens between the hours of nine and five. In other words, it's happening at work. So please understand, if you're toying with that, you're playing with fire and it's likely you're gonna get burned. I believe that it's ruining a lot of marriages and it's playing havoc with the intimacy in those marriages. Listen, if you've got the commitment that my wife and I have to each other, we're gonna be with each other for life. This is it. Then wouldn't you want that marriage, wouldn't you want every aspect of that marriage to be the best it can possibly be? Guard it. Guard it tenaciously, I beg you from any encroachment, from anything that would enslave and ruin it. Gambling has the same addictive potential. Pathological gambling is growing at an alarming rate. Back in 2002, there were $7.4 billion spent on gambling annually. Today, that's probably tenfold. It's growing every single year. I spoke some years ago, counseled with a young family where the husband and the father, in this case, had spent over $70,000, just blew it, with gambling. It had led the family into bankruptcy. It had caused unbelievable stress. They lost their home. It strained relationships. The marriage was on the rocks. And let me say to you, if that's a tendency in your life, you say, oh, it's just so innocent. But please understand, for many, they find it to have this growing addictive power. And it's often driven by the desire to just get rich quick without following sound financial principles. 
Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and to many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But notice what it says to the woman or man who really is following Christ. But you, O man or woman of God, flee from all this. Flee from it. Run. Run. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. There's all kinds of things that can enslave us, and they grow so insidiously until, before we know it, we feel that we can't do without this. But while sin has the potential to enslave, Jesus has the power to liberate. Praise be to God. When this demon-possessed man came running at Jesus, Jesus didn't rebuke him, he didn't banish him, nor did he chastise him. He demonstrated that just as he could calm a storm on the Sea of Galilee, he could calm this tormented man's soul just as easily. And he commanded those demons to come out. Verse 35 reads, And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. He'd been possessed by a myriad of demons. Now he was controlled by Christ. He was irrational before. Now he was in his right mind. He was naked. Now he was clothed. He was alienated from people living in the tombs. And now he had this whole host of caring people around him. What a picture that is. He was tormented in his heart. And now he was at perfect peace. And I simply say to you, if you're struggling and tormented by addiction of any kind, whether it's incredibly intense or rather mild, I say to you that Jesus wants to free you from that. But how? I want to spend the balance of our time together talking about that question. How? How? If all this is true, that Jesus is a friend of the oppressed, how can I find the freedom, Pastor Rex, that you say he wants to bring? Well, let's just spend a few minutes talking about that together. And I want to give you some steps. And I believe they kind of build on each other. And I believe you need to take every one of these steps if you really, and I mean really, want to be liberated. Steps to liberation. What are they? Number one, admit the problem. It all begins right there, doesn't it? You're not going to be able to overcome this by sheer willpower. Don't blame other people. Don't give excuses. Openly admit, I'm under the control of things with forces uh, that are beyond my ability to deal with on my own, and it has the potential to destroy me. Admit that. Until you can humble yourself in that way, I don't think there's any chance of you getting well. Second, if you haven't already done so, if you haven't already done so, give your life completely to Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you why I say that. Jesus told a short parable about a house where the man swept 
the house clean. There had been a demon in this house, and he swept it out, but he left the house empty and vacuous. Jesus said that seven demons, worse than the first, came and inhabited that house. You see, your life cannot be left as a vacuum. You can't just stop a behavior and then just kind of leave yourself open for whatever wants to come along and fill that slot. You've got to fill your life with the Holy Spirit of God. So when you put your trust in Christ and confess him publicly, when you're baptized into him, he doesn't just forgive your sins, as you often hear me say. He adopts you into his family, and here's the deal. He comes in. And he begins to change you from the inside out. So I'm saying to you, without that power, I just don't know how you're going to break this. I have known dozens and dozens of people who've been gloriously liberated from horrendous addictions that were crushing them and destroying them and ruining their lives. And I want to tell you, I personally, now this is just me personally, I don't know of a single one that didn't do it without some dependence on God. So if you think you're going to get liberation on your own, all I say, and I don't, I don't say it flippantly, but I, good luck with that. That's, that's generally not the way it works. If you haven't already done so, give your life totally to Christ. Yield your life to him. It's not a drag. It's the greatest moment of decision and transformation that you will ever have. Third, determine you want to be liberated, not just forgiven. Now, please listen closely. C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford scholar, wrote, Some people pray, Lord, help me to overcome this sin. But not yet. But not yet. Lord, make me clean, liberate me, but hey, hang on, be patient. I'll be ready sometime, not yet. In John chapter 5, Jesus encountered a man who'd been disabled for 38 years. And Jesus, as he saw him lying there by the pool, (coughs) he asked him a, a question. Do you want to get well? What a question. Jesus, of course he wants to get well. He's been here 38 years. No, no, no. Jesus understood human nature. He had emotional intelligence. He had insight into the soul of people. He sized it up well. Listen, people don't always want to get well, right now at least, because they perceive, it may be crazy, it may be irrational, but they perceive more of an upside to their addiction or their disability than actually getting over it. And so, if you don't really want to get well, I just want to tell you, God's not going to force himself on you. He wants to set you free. He wants to give you a new day, a new season, a new life. He's desirous of that, but you have to really want to get well. And that's a provocative question. Sometimes I've had people ponder that and have the honesty to say to me, you know what? No, I'm just trying to get my wife off my back right now, that's all. They've said that to me. I've had women say to me, you know, I just, I just want my family to calm down. That's why I came to see you. That's why we had this talk today. I'm not, I'm not ready. 
be honest. Do you want to get well? Fourth, be accountable to another believer. Oh, here's where it goes to another level. You have to have the humility to show this proof of your desire. James 5, 16, therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You see, it takes denial and secrecy to keep an addiction going. But confession and openness, you immediately feel those chains being broken. Ah, it's out now. I've literally seen people kind of just lose the tension in their neck and shoulders when they've finally confessed something that's been a secret for a long time. The chains are already being broken. And when two Christians come together that really trust one another, and one of them is candid enough to say, look, I'm struggling with something. Nobody knows about it, but would you please pray for me and help me through this struggle? That's a powerful thing. Ecclesiastes 4 says, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands, meaning you and that accountability partner and the Lord is not quickly broken. Next, be willing to pray and fast for victory. Joel says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger. Where do people get the idea that God is just all wrath and anger? Oh yeah, there's that capacity in our great God that makes him who he is, but the scripture continually puts the primary accent on God's compassion and his love and that he's slow to anger and he relents from sending calamity. And so what I'm saying to you is when you spend a day or two without food, it demonstrates, God, I'm serious because you're putting the spiritual ahead of the physical. Next, as much as possible, remove the source of temptation. One guy was asked how he stopped smoking. He said, I wet all my matches, man. I wet all my matches. Jesus put it like this. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. <laughs> it's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now, hear me. I don't think Jesus wants you harming yourself. This is called hyperbole. It's a literary device. We use it today. It's an intentional, obvious exaggeration to make a point. My words would be this. What Jesus means here is, do whatever it takes. Although some people historically have taken this literally, believe it or not. I don't think that's what he meant for you to cut your hand. He's, do what it takes. Be willing, be willing to take reasonable but drastic measures if need be. And so it may be that you need to empty the bottles. Clean out the pantry, cancel those channels, put 
the computer right there in the living area where everybody can see. Take some action that demonstrates to God and to yourself that you seriously want to be liberated. Next, anticipate opposition from some of your former friends. Verse 37 reads, Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Wow! You would think the people of this region would be delighted. Now they're safe. The demons have been cast out. You would think they would be thrilled that this man had been healed and helped, but the herd of pigs has been destroyed. Jesus interrupted their routine. He threatened their economy, and they wanted him out. Please understand this. You've got a network. I don't care who you are. You've got a network of relationships. And every disability, every addiction that I've personally ever known anything about, it's just my experience, is systemic in some sense. In other words, it's affecting not just the person, but many others with whom they're connected. And so often, there's this dysfunctional, systemic thing that starts happening where people have become enablers and they are kind of getting some perceived upside out of this too, as sick as it may be, as dysfunctional as it may be. In reality, they perceive there's some upside. And so these people don't want Jesus around. They don't want to hear what he has to say. He's threatened their lifestyle, their system, their network, the way things are. The status quo is not status quo anymore. And they know that when Jesus comes in, some pigs have to go. And if you overcome an addiction, some of your friends are not going to like it. I love that old country song that says... You ate much fun since I've stopped drinking. Oh, the great theology in those country songs. <laughs> and it kind of goes both ways, doesn't it? But don't be surprised if some people you'd never expect aren't real thrilled, honestly, when you begin to get some freedom and liberation from what's been oppressing you. And finally, the last step. Look for some opportunity to serve others. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. When you get your mind off your own temptations and on to trying to help others, it empowers you because you want to be a positive example for others, not just for your own sake. Not long after he found sobriety, Bill Wilson, known in AA lore as Bill W., realized that, whoa, he was struggling and he was about to go get drunk again. So in desperation... He sought and found the name of someone, Dr. Bob, to whom he could tell his story. Ultimately, Dr. Bob became sober 
And with Bill Wilson, they became the co-founders of AA. But Bill Wilson understood that the main reason for telling his story was not to save Dr. Bob. Rather, he understood that if he didn't give away what he had, he would get drunk again. He knew it was not because he was strong and Dr. Bob was weak that he was sharing. No, it's because that he was weak. But as he reached out to Dr. Bob and tried to help, in that process, he gained strength. Jesus said we ought to be servants to one another. We're not strong, but in our weakness, as we help one another, we're strengthened by Christ. A father watched through the window as his little son kept trying to lift a fairly good-sized rock out of the sandbox, and he just tried and tried but was unable to leverage it and get it out of there. And he sat down finally, this little boy, on the edge of the sandbox and put his head in his hands in frustration. The dad came out and said, son, can, can you not lift the rock out of there? He said, no, dad. He said, did you use all the strength you have? He said, yes. He said, did you use everything you have available to you? Son said, yes, I did, dad. Dad said, son, you... You haven't, you haven't asked me to help you. And together, they lifted the rock out. My word to you today is actually, when you boil it down, pretty simple. There may be forces in your life, addictions, struggles, powers that are oppressing you and holding you down and keeping you from the kind of freedom that Jesus designed for the women and men who really belong to him. Oh, he wants freedom. But I want to tell you, no matter how smart you are, no matter how resourceful or brilliant you may be, you can't overcome that addiction on your own. But you've got a heavenly father that's anxiously waiting for you to ask his help. And when you do, together, he will bring you to the kind of freedom you seek. And you'll be able to say with the apostle Paul, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Father, thank you for your power to liberate today. And I know that addictions can be so strong that they literally crush the life out. They literally hold us back and every day create a sense of gloom and depression and defeat. May today be the first day, the first step toward liberation as we look to you, the one who alone can set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Rex. I would like to take the...